So, John 16, and just so you have some context on where we've been going, what we're doing, we're in the middle of a series uh, called Departing Orders. This is actually the last week of that series, and what we have been looking at is the fact that Jesus, as he is preparing to go, uh, right, he's saying, I'm going away, I am leaving, and so as he, as he recognizes that he's leaving, he's giving his disciples some orders, He's giving them some understandings uh, before he goes. And so what we've been doing over the last several weeks is we've been exploring the specific commands that Jesus is giving his, to his disciples before he does this thing where he goes to his father. So uh, week one, we looked at the command to abide, right? That this was central to everything. As Jesus goes away, he, he's saying to his disciples, you need to abide in me. And what we discovered was that when he says abide, what he's really saying is, keep my commandments. Remember the things that I've said to you. Uh, make me enough for you. Find your enough in me. Make me your place of rest. Make me the place that you abide. Week two, we looked at his command to love. He said to them, love each other. Make sure that you love one another. When the world hates us, our unity is our greatest defense. Our love for one another is our greatest defense in the midst of that. Week three, we looked at this command. This was last week to pay attention, right? Jesus says to his disciples, I'm going away, but you know what? I'm sending a helper in my stead. As I go away, the helper is coming. Holy Spirit is going to lead you into truth. The things that you know now because I tell them to you, I'm going to go away and then he's going to come and he will continue to tell you what the truth is. He will give you the capacity to bear and believe the truth. But this is not enough. This is not where his commands end. In fact, I want to tell you the extent to which it is not enough because I want you to put yourself in the shoes of the disciples with me for a moment. What has been the driving force of Jesus's ministry, right? These, these disciples, they're expected to be carrying forward Jesus's mission after Jesus goes away. What has been the driving force of Jesus's ministry up to this point? Was it uh, the disciples changed lives that had been the driving force of Jesus's ministry? It was not, no. Was it the disciples' trades or the work that they did, the way that they funded Jesus' ministry? Is that what drove Jesus' ministry forward? No, it's not. Was it the disciples' miracles? Now, the disciples did perform miracles for what it's worth, but was it that that drove the ministry forward? No. Was it the disciples' great teaching skill that made the ministry particularly effective? No, it was not any of that. Everything valuable that this mission has accomplished, everything that they've done was done by Jesus. Every single piece of it. Nothing that they have accomplished so far, they have been able to do on their own. The only way anything has gotten done has been because Jesus has done it. Without him, this mission is nothing. Right, so imagine their perspective when Jesus says, I'm leaving. And you're going to keep it going. You're going to keep this thing moving. And then he says something like, and it's actually, it's better for you and the mission that I leave. That doesn't make sense. I, like if I'm a disciple, I'm going, um, Jesus, have you seen us? Like, have, you, have you seen just like the way that we talk to people? Have you seen the way that we interact with each other? Have you seen 
us get into fights with each other? Like, have you seen the way that we make every kind of everywhere we go, we just frustrate people and make them angry? Like, I, Jesus, I don't care how much we digest your teaching. We can't do what you do. We can't. I imagine this being a key thought the entire time that he's giving them these directions. Hey, you've got to keep this thing going. I'm going to go away. You're going to take care of it. Uh, you know, and they're thinking about this, and, and I hear them going, like, okay, endure persecution. Sure, I can endure persecution as the world hates me. Uh, love each other. Okay, you know, I think we, maybe we can figure that out. We can figure the love each other thing out. That's just dandy. We can do that. But if this is up to us, what has been happening so far, if this is going to continue, it will fall flat on its face. We cannot do what you do, Jesus. We can't do miracles, except for that one time where we did do miracles, and you know how we did that? We did that because you gave us the power to do it. That's the only way we were able to do it. We can't compel crowds. In fact, we mostly just annoy them when we go where they are. We cannot best the Pharisees in debate. We don't have your power. We are not the son of the most high God. We cannot do what you do. If you're going to leave and the world will hate us, Jesus, we don't stand a chance. And Jesus' message to them, his heart for them in this moment is chill. Like, chill. He says again and again and again, peace, peace, peace. My peace I leave with you. As I go away, I'm leaving my peace with you. My peace I give to you, not as the world gives do I give. Let not your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid. So the last thing we have to explore in Jesus' message to his disciples is this. How is it? that after giving them kind of the most significant commands and warnings, and then saying that he's getting ready to leave, how is it that he can expect them to have peace? Let's look at John 16, verse 7. Verse 7 says this. Nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. You've already been doing this with me, but I want you to imagine the immense pressure that the disciples must be experiencing. They're thinking as Jesus talks, those people out there outside these very doors they want to kill you. Oh, and by the way, us for our association with you. And Jesus says to them, and you're going to carry on my mission among those people who want to kill you right now. Like, how, how are we going to do that? Jesus, when he speaks to them here in this moment, what he is doing is he is kind of opening for them a pressure release valve by opening their eyes up to something. He says to them, you know what, actually, it's better off for you that I go away. You're in a better situation now because I'm leaving. Prior to this, you were not in the situation, but because I go away, you're in a better situation. The idea is, and what he's trying to communicate to them, by his death 
and resurrection and then ascension. When he ascends and he kind of completes this process of his glorification, now everything has been completed in the Father's plan for him to be able to send the Holy Spirit. So that when Jesus ascends, he now sends the Holy Spirit to come and inhabit his people. So, so when the disciples hear him say, it's to your advantage that I go away, well, the reason that it's to their advantage is certainly not because of anything that they could do, right? It's, in fact, it's never been because of that in the first place. The only thing that has made this ministry and this mission function has been the power of God. It's been the power of God that's been driving everything. So guess what, Jesus says, when I go, it'll still only be a result of God's power. Jesus essentially tells them this. The pressure is not on you. The pressure is not on you. It's better for you that I go because when I send Holy Spirit, the power for mission that is only currently in me will then come to every single one of you through him. Right? It multiplies. It actually is exponential in the way that it expands because of being, instead of being located only in one place, it's now located inside of everybody. The power that drives the mission is going to be in all of you. Jesus is like, guys, get this. You're right. It, you can't do it. Right? You cannot drive this mission forward. But I, Jesus, I, right now, am the engine of God's plan and his work in the world. But when I go that doesn't mean that you will become the engine of God's plan and work in the world. Like the car would die if you were the engine. We all know that. We've been acknowledging it. The helper will be the engine. Holy Spirit will be the power. He'll be the driver. He'll be the director. Right? He's the kingdom builder. He's the one who accomplishes it. And guess what? When I go, I'm going to send him. So it's better for you that I go. So what does this mean? Why does this matter? He goes on. And verse 8 explains why it matters. And when he comes, he will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. Can I tell you what I know about some of you? I know some of you have had interactions where you have worked hard to try to create opportunity for spiritual conversation with your friends and neighbors. I know that you have been faithful to love your friends and neighbors who do not yet believe in Jesus. I know you've been faithful to love them without an ulterior motive, that you've prayed for them, that many of you have even shared the gospel with them, and that when you have done that, you've been met with resistance. That your words and actions seem to have no impact. And what you do is you replay those moments again and again and again in your head because you're like, could I have done something differently? Could I have changed something? I couldn't convince them. I didn't do my job. I failed in some way. And you might be inclined to think that. And I know that you think like that because sometimes I think like that about myself. So can I tell you something tremendously freeing? You cannot change a person. You cannot change a person. You have no power. I don't care how rightly you articulate things. I don't care how well you love a person. You cannot make them believe. You can't change them. There is nothing that you can do that can make them the slightest ounce of responsive to the gospel. Right? It doesn't mean that you don't have work 
to listen to them and to love them and to keep improving your own ability to speak the gospel well. It doesn't mean that you stop short of telling them the whole truth. It doesn't mean that you keep finding different ways to create opportunity and continuing to love. It doesn't mean any of that, but you are not responsible for how they respond. Jesus says that is Holy Spirit's responsibility. He's the one who takes that on. The pressure is on him. So what exactly is the pressure on him to do? Jesus says that he is coming to convict the world. The word convict means this. Convict is to help someone see and admit wrongdoing. The word quite literally means to be exposed, right? It's like shining a light on something to to reveal the way that things actually are. And this word is always used in the context of somebody bringing to light wrongdoing. Right to help someone see and admit wrongdoing. Jesus is saying, your mission, which we've we've described the mission before, but just as a reminder, the mission is helping the world see Jesus whom we follow. Right, helping the world see Jesus whom we follow. So Jesus says, your mission, it will require people to be willing to recognize their own fault. It will require people being humbled by truth. It will require people seeing and agreeing with God about the extreme degree to which they are broken. And you cannot convince them of that. It doesn't mean you don't have responsibility to tell them. But at the end of the day, Holy Spirit is going to be the one who exposes their fault to them. And they won't realize their need until they are exposed in their wrongdoing. And guess what? It's Holy Spirit's job to lay hearts bare. It's not your job. So then Jesus explains how Holy Spirit goes about this work. In fact, it's quite meticulous. The kind of work that he does, it's very detailed. It's interesting that Jesus goes into the level of detail of the way that he brings about this conviction inside of people. Right. So remember last week, we talked about how we us believers in Jesus, that before we trust Jesus, we actually don't have the capacity to carry truth with us. There's something so broken about the decisions that we've made, uh, something so rebellious about us, that when truth comes to us, we lack the capacity to carry it, right? To actually handle it as it comes to us. But then Holy Spirit comes and, and does something divine and supernatural inside of us to where we can actually be able to carry and bear truth. Right, so we talked about that, and actually, Jesus is applying the same kind of idea to those who do not yet believe. Right, the concept applies here for how the Holy Spirit not only works inside of Christians, but how he works in the world. So, for those who do not believe, there are three truths that only the Holy Spirit can reveal to hearts. There are three truths that only he has the power to reveal. And Jesus actually, like, he gets very detailed about the way he describes these things. So let's look at them. John 16, 9. Sin, righteousness, righteousness, and judgment were the categories that Jesus gave us. So in verse 9, it says, concerning sin, because they do not believe in me. So occasionally, you can help someone who doesn't yet believe. You have the ability to help them recognize their wrongdoing, 
Uh, occasionally, as you talk to them, you're able to help them see something that did wrong. You may be even help th- uh, able to help them admit their wrongdoing. But when Jesus describes sin here, it's not just like about one thing that you've done wrong that you need to kind of own up for. Because he includes this word believe. So this word believe, we've already discovered from Jesus uh, the things that he said throughout this book, that belief in him is the only means by which we find our way back to God. It's the only way we find our way back to God. It's the means by which we are saved and reconciled to God. That's it. So when Jesus talks about sin and sin kind of being the opposite of belief, what he's saying here is that, that all sin at its core is offense against and separation from God. At its core, every sin is this idea of, of being set against God, that, that it's kind of your natural and willing relational conflict with your creator. That's what sin is. Natural and willing relational conflict with your creator. So get this. Most people, when they are exposed in their wrongdoing, they might say sorry to other people for the damage that they've caused. But to recognize offense against and separation from God requires the work of God to be present in the heart of that person. Right, that that is a truth that only he can impart the human soul to be able to have the capacity to bear. So, So the first truth then that the Holy Spirit, only the Holy Spirit can reveal to hearts is this. Number one, that I'm helpless unless God and I can be reconciled. I am helpless unless God and I can be reconciled. That's the first truth. The second truth that the whole, only the Holy Spirit can reveal to hearts is this. In verse 10, Jesus says, concerning righteousness, because I go to the Father and you will see me no longer. So um, there are a host of actions that Jesus, by his very presence on earth, was able to expose as falling short of what God desired. In fact, if you just look on the sermon on, at the Sermon on the Mount, the number of times that Jesus, as this teacher that nobody had ever heard teach with authority before, Jesus in his very presence said, you have heard it said, but I say to you, right, you have this idea of righteousness. Let me tell you what real righteousness is. Again and again and again, Jesus is saying, uh, you think this is what is right and good, but actually I want to give you a clearer picture of what is right and good. The Pharisees actually had thought that they had the market cornered on what righteousness was. And Jesus says, you know what? Unless your righteousness exceeds that of the Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Right, so, so Jesus drew attention to things like unforgiveness, neglect of the needy, cursing your brother. He, he drew attention to things like hatred of the Gentiles and hatred of Samaritans. And all of these things were culturally acceptable at the time. And Jesus had to come up to them and reveal what true righteousness looked like. So this is Jesus essentially saying, when he says this, he's saying, when I leave to go to the Father there will still be confusion about what true righteousness is. There will still be confusion about what is actually right and good. Why? Because every culture in the world has boundaries of what it calls right 
and wrong that do not align with God's heart. Right? And so undoing what culture has written on the human heart and replacing it with righteousness is beyond your capacity as you interact with your friends and neighbors. You do not have the ability to undo the kind of framework of right and wrong that culture has written on the hearts of your friends and neighbors. You don't have that ability. Holy Spirit will have to do this. That's what Jesus is saying. You cannot debate someone out of the belief that their kids should be able to pick their own gender. You will not be able to debate them out of that. You cannot debate a person out of worshiping their addiction. You cannot debate someone into recognizing their love for their money. Holy Spirit must create the capacity for these truths. So the second, the second piece of this, the second truth that Holy Spirit must instruct people in and that only he can do is that my understanding of right and wrong is warped. Only he is able to convince me of that. Doesn't mean you don't tell me, but he needs to do the work of convincing me. Verse 11. Concerning judgment. Because the ruler of this world is judged. When Jesus is talking about the ruler of this world, what we know is that he's talking about Satan. Right? He's talking about uh, dark spiritual forces, the spiritual reality that is behind what we can see with our eyes. So Jesus, what he's doing is, is he is kind of forecasting what is about to happen with the biggest switcheroo that's ever happened in all of history. Right? When he goes to the cross, Satan and his demons will think that they have won. Darkness will think that it had conquered him, and in reality... The cross itself is what deals a death blow to all of them, right? So at the cross, Jesus' victory over Satan, though not final, that, that final victory will not happen until the end of all things, right? But, but his victory over Satan is certain. Satan's convinced of it, right? He knows at, at the cross when he finally sees the great mistake that he's made, he realizes Jesus has actually won a victory over him. It's certain, though it's not final. So the one who gathers armies of enemies against God, right? This is what the adversary does. He goes out into the world and he works, he tries, he's gathering up armies of enemies to oppose God. His future defeat and torment is certain. It's guaranteed, right? The cross proves that. And so this cro- the cross, it is kind of like a line of demarcation, right? Believe and allow Jesus' blood to pay for your rebellion against God. Or, don't believe and face God's judgment yourself. The cross is that clear line of demarcation. Everyone who believes and trusts Jesus to bear their judgment, it happens because Holy Spirit has helped them to recognize something first. And that is this. I deserve hell for my opposition against God. That is a truth that we are inclined, both because of our flesh and because of the realities of our culture, we are inclined to hate that truth. It is not natural for us to accept that truth. Only Holy Spirit can convince a person that that is true. 
Right, so let's look at the three truths then, right? They're up here. I'm helpless unless God and I can be reconciled. My understanding of right and wrong is warped, and I deserve hell for my opposition against God. All of these require a depth of conviction in a person's heart. They require, actually what they do, they require a person to have deep humility, right? To actually get to the point of admitting that level of wrongdoing because each of them requires a certain level of admission of wrongdoing. I've been wrong about what I think, about what is right and wrong. I've been wrong about the things that I've done. And actually the things that I've done are so bad that the only righteous response is eternal judgment. It requires humility. It requires a recognition of a need that I'm disconnected from my creator and the deepest need of my soul is to be reconnected to my creator. Right, this requires undoing years of harshly ingrained cultural understanding. So church, you need to be set free from the truth that you cannot do any of that. That is the work of Holy Spirit to convince hearts of these things. Okay, so I already know that some of you are thinking, hold your horses, Pastor, right? If Holy Spirit does the work, then what do I do? What do I do? If, if, if that's his job, then what is my job? And that's a fair question. The beauty of this is that he's already told them what their job is. He said, abide in me and love each other with Holy Spirit's help. Abide in me and love each other with Holy Spirit's help. Right Before he tells them that the Holy Spirit is actually going to do the heavy lifting for them, he's already cleared, clarified to them what they need to do. Right, Abide. Keep my commandments. Rest in my love for you. Find your enough in me. Abide in me. Make your home in me. Love one another. You're going to practice my commandments to each other, right? If you practice my commandments toward one another, the reality of the things that you believe is actually made visible to the people around you. They can actually say that, like, observe that you believe the things that you say you believe. Right? And then he says, pay attention, right? Pay attention to what uh, he's going to teach you, to what Holy Spirit, as Holy Spirit comes and he, uh, he reveals to you what is true. And in fact, with all of us who do believe, he does this work where he keeps convicting us, right? He keeps showing us that the places where we're wrong and keeps teaching us to admit our wrongdoing, right? That as you pay attention to him, he will enable you to increasingly carry truth and also speak the truth to people around you. Right, so abide, love, pay attention. Right? All of this kind of culminates in, in this idea, and I just want to clarify what it is that the Holy Spirit does with us. The Holy Spirit, Holy Spirit empowers your faithfulness. Holy Spirit amplifies your faithfulness. So when he empowers your faithfulness, this is what he's doing. He's actually giving you the ability to begin walking in faithfulness to Jesus, right? He increases your ability to walk in faithfulness to Jesus. He helps you to be able to abide more securely in Jesus. He helps prune you in the places where unfaithfulness is kind of working its way out. He prunes you and shapes you into the person that he desires you to become. He helps you walk in faithfulness. He empowers your faithfulness. But then beyond that, as you walk in faithfulness to both do and to speak the things related to his mission, 
you know what he does? It's like he puts speakers up. Like he, he somehow makes the things that he's doing inside of you louder so that people can hear them, so that people are able to receive them, right? He, he puts amplification behind the things that he's doing inside of you. And then Holy Spirit works in places that you cannot work, right? inside the hearts of other people, places that are beyond your jurisdiction. He's also doing that. Okay, so everything up there. What do we do? What is our part? Faithfulness. That's the only, he's doing everything else, right? He's taking care of all of the other pieces. Your part is faithfulness. That's the part that he calls you to. Right, so, so what does faithfulness look like then? Because certainly the simplistic answer to this question is, well, you love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself, right? But I want you to consider the answer to that question, what does faithfulness look like, in the context of what Jesus is talking to his disciples about. Because he's saying to them, like, this is about mission, right? This is about what they're going to have to do after he leaves, right? So in the context of mission, apparently abiding and loving each other, these two things together make the mission more effective. So just to remind us, we just need to remember what the mission is. The mission is helping others see Jesus whom we follow. Okay, so we talk about faithfulness. What is my part in the mission then? to talk about what it means to actually obey Jesus' commands as it relates to the mission. Jesus is telling them, like, all of this stuff in a context in which his primary work has been up to this point, as he's been advancing the mission, his primary work has been to speak the good news of the kingdom in this way. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. That, like, that's basically been what he's up to. Like, that's, that's the main thing that he has to say to people. The king is here. The kingdom of heaven has, has, has come. And so repent. Right? It's time for you to meet the king. Right? So faithfulness looks like speaking Jesus' message and learning to obey Jesus' commands. And that creates the context in which the Holy Spirit most frequently goes to work. Right? That creates the context in which the Holy Spirit says, I get behind that, I add fuel to that, I amplify that, and then I work inside of people who are hearing that message. So let me just share something with you as we prepare to close this morning. Romans 10, 14 through 17. Verse 14 says, How then will they call on him whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him of whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone Preaching. The idea of preaching is not what I stand up here and do on Sunday morning, although that is certainly a part of preaching. The idea of preaching is that you open your mouth and you speak the truth of the gospel. That's what it means to preach in that context. Verse 15, and how are they to open their mouth and speak truth about the gospel unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. All right, so God loves when his people are clarifying to other people the truth of Scripture. And people, you know what, they're not going to recognize their wrongdoing without us opening our mouths and speaking the truth of Scripture. And you know what, God loves it when his people accompany that truth with the good news. 
right? That God is doing something new, that he has sent his son Jesus to reconcile us to God, to show us a new way of living, to forgive us our sin by becoming sin for us in our place and taking on judgment for our sake. So faithfulness looks like us looking for people who desperately need these truths, loving those people well, and finding opportunity to share these truths with them. It's faithfulness. So verse 16. But they have not all obeyed the gospel. For Isaiah says, Lord, who has blessed what he, or who has believed what he has heard from us. So his point here, the reason uh, Paul is quoting this verse is he's trying to say, you know, to, to obey the gospel is for them to believe it when they hear it. He's making a point about hearing, right? That, that when something is spoken, there is an opportunity to believe. And so he's saying, of course, not everybody believes, but the point is that they hear and that they're given the opportunity to believe. 17, so faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. Hearing here refers to spiritual understanding as well as physical hearing. And the principle that we see, we cannot expect the Holy Spirit to work if we do not share the gospel. But even when you do share it, only the Holy Spirit can do the heavy lifting of changing the heart. Okay, so what? Number one, work together with Holy Spirit. So, so uh, there are, I want to just kind of list, list off five different ways. You could probably come up with more, but we got five this morning. Five different ways we can work together with the Holy Spirit. Probably the most important one and the most often neglected one, pray specifically and regularly. Right? If if there is a spiritual work that has to be done, then what that would call us to do is to engage in some spiritual labor beyond the mere speaking, right? We're, we're going to have to do some work on us, right? We need, to, we need to actually personally be prepared to figure out what it looks like to listen to the Holy Spirit in the moment, to be aware of his voice, to know the words that he wants to speak to us, to get us out of the way so that he can do his work. But then also, we need to be praying for the people that we're interacting with, right? Because if only God can break down the hard walls that are built around hearts, then we need to be looking to him to do that and consistently seeking him to do that and crying out for him to do that because that's the only way that it gets done. So pray specifically and regularly. Number two, pay attention for open doors for gospel witness. When you pray specifically and regularly, you know what you will be doing more often? Is you will be recognizing open doors for gospel witness more frequently. Right? And as you recognize those open doors, if uh, you have opportunity to then step through and share, when you see somebody in the midst of a certain pain point in their life, you have opportunity to step in and share and ask them, how do you, how do you see God working in the midst of that? Can I share with you how, how I've seen God working in the midst of my pain? Right? There are opportunities for all sorts of stuff like that. If you are in a context where you feel like you don't have any open doors, then I just want to encourage you to maybe think of something maybe you need to look for a new context, 
right? If you've been somewhere and you feel like the place has dried up long, like it's not working. If it's your workplace, maybe you you don't necessarily find a different workplace, but you're going to put your gospel energy, your witnessing energy in a different place, right? If you feel like there's just no open door for that, that kind of thing there. But may, the, the idea is, is you need to be looking for contexts in which you can be a gospel witness. Uh, here's another one. We can work together with the Holy Spirit by being prepared to make an investment of our time. You know, especially, I think, now, because uh, there used to be a day in which those you would share the gospel with would share a lot of the same language and understanding that you had as you grew up. Like, like people had some context for the Bible. People had some context for the ideas of morality that we carry with us. And it increasingly, like, that's becoming less and less the case, right? We share a lot less language. We share a lot less understanding than we used to with our culture. And so what that means is that like the first time you share the gospel, there's a pretty good chance that will not be the time that they believe. In fact, what it probably requires is that you might have to labor with them for a year, like me, and would you study scripture with me? Would you look at these ideas? Let, let God like work over the long process to change them. That doesn't mean that when you share the gospel, they might not just believe in that moment, but increasingly we should be expecting to make a long-term investment of time with people. Be gracious to your hearers. Getting mad at a person for not believing is like getting mad at an infant because they can't walk. Right? That doesn't mean that you don't give them a warning, but your warnings to them always come from a place of love and patience, and they certainly do not come from a place of anger. Be gracious with your hearers, and finally, present an opportunity to respond. So, so you can share your gospel, uh, share the gospel and you know, your perspective on what you believe is true until you're blue in the face, but what you want to aim for is, is giving them an opportunity to respond, saying something like, you know what, like, you could decide to follow Jesus now if you wanted to. It's not, it's not withheld from anybody. Like, you can place your trust in him now. Do you want to do that? Right? Just asking a question and giving, giving them a chance to actually respond to what Jesus has done is very important. So those are all ways that you can work together with the Holy Spirit. Uh, the second so what I have for us this morning is this. And really, kind of the full main point of what I've been aiming for this morning is this. Embrace the limitations of your role. You can only do what you can do. And you can't do what you can't do. And I know that that makes a ton of sense to everybody in this room, but that doesn't mean that you don't wrap yourself up in all sorts of anxiety and frustration and concern because you're wondering, did I do enough? Right? Embrace the limitations of your role. You know what? The, the disciples <laughs> offended far more people with the gospel than they ever wanted faith with the gospel. Right? The message of the gospel is offensive. The message that your disobedience puts you at odds with God. That your idea of right and wrong is warped and needs to be corrected. That you deserve hell like I do for opposing God. Right? It's sobering to realize that tradition records nearly every single disciple eventually facing a gruesome execution for preaching the gospel. They were very adept at speaking words that helped people hate them. But as we end this week, I want to turn your attention to the last verse in Jesus' instruction to them. John 16, 33. 
He says to them, I have said these things to you, that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation, but take heart, I have overcome the world. Jesus says to them, as long as I'm enough for you, you will have everything you need, right? Stay faithful, abide, love each other. And yes, the world will hate you and the world will kill you. But take heart, because do you know what else will happen? As the world hates you and kills you for what you say, at the same time, Holy Spirit will come and convict the world of sin, righteousness, and judgment. Just want to share with you a few stories of those disciples. This is, this is tradition. This isn't written down in scripture for us, but we can trust it to a degree. Andrew, the disciple Andrew, he um, hung on a cross, so he, w- he was crucified. That was his execution. But he was alive for two days while he hung on that cross. And tradition holds that as he hung on that cross, he spent the entirety of the two days preaching the gospel to those who had hung him up there for his execution. And they had to stay and listen to him because they couldn't just walk away. They had responsibility to guard him as he was there and make sure that he died. And as they were making sure that he died, he was preaching the gospel to them the entire time until he breathed his last. James, the son of Zebedee, uh, he was a very strong leader in the church. He was, uh, Rome had come into Jerusalem. He was taken prisoner by Rome in Jerusalem for the ministry that he was doing. And the officer who guarded him while he was in prison, watched James the entire time of his trial. And James, in his trial, was speaking about the gospel. He was saying, these are the things that I've seen to be true. This is what Jesus has done. I'm only simply uh, stating the things that I have already seen seen to be true. And when it came time, at the end of his trial, for him to be declared guilty and to be executed, that officer who was watching him confessed his faith in Jesus, knelt down beside him so that they could both be beheaded for believing in Jesus. Paul would be imprisoned for his faith. And in prison, he would find that he has a lot of time on his hands. And so while he's in prison, he would write down words that would be transferred all over the known world and, by the way, throughout 2,000 years of history so that people could be convicted of sin, righteousness, and judgment through the power of the Holy Spirit. So Jesus says to them and to us, take heart. Not because you'll be safe, Not because you'll be accepted, but because in him you have far more than this world can give. And even when the the world hates you, Holy Spirit will use your work to change hearts. Church, would you pray with me, please? It is hard... Lord, for me to preach a sermon like this and not have my attention drawn to those in my sphere of influence that, um, that I long to see come to faith in you. Lord, that I, I long to see accept the truths that you have to speak, to, to agree with them, Lord, to have the walls of their heart broken down and to, to look to you alone as their Lord and their God. And so, 
even now in this moment, I pray that you would be drawing attention of the hearts and minds of my brothers and sisters to those in their spheres of influence who they know need the wonder of the gospel, the wonder of believing in Jesus and a relationship, a reconciled relationship with their creator. Lord, would you empower our prayers? Would you break down those things of us which get in the way of noticing the work that you're up to? So that we could rest in the work that you're doing. I pray for my brothers and sisters as regards, in regards to their faithfulness, that you would teach us increasingly what it looks like to faithfully share the gospel with people, and not just share the gospel, but to faithfully love people well, to take care of them, to serve them, to consider ourselves servants of all, to express hospitality to those who don't yet know you, Lord, and to faithfully share your truth with them. Lord, these are works that we trust you for, and so, Lord, I pray that you would teach us more and more what it looks like to take our eyes off of ourselves as the, one who, who, the ones who need to do the work so that we could look to you and learn to get out of the way so that you can do your work. Show us what simple faithfulness looks like and help us to just rest in what you've done for us, for that to be our source of identity, our source of security, so that when we speak and open our mouth, we just simply trust you to do the work that you're going to do. Holy Spirit, thank you. Father, thank you for the gift of worshiping together. I pray that as we turn our attention now to communion, that you would fill up our hearts with the, the reminder of exactly what it is that Jesus has accomplished for our sake. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.